0: I want you to think about where you live right now. So your home, your apartment, your condo, your bedroom, your address, your street, your neighborhood, whatever. It shouldn't be too hard to think about because you've probably spent a lot of time there lately. <laughs> but I want you to think about what are the main challenges of where you live. Maybe the location isn't ideal. Maybe the rental costs or utility costs are high. Perhaps you have annoying neighbors or family members that are challenging to live with or roommates. Maybe you have no air conditioning or maybe it's really noisy and smelly place to live. Maybe your home desperately needs repairs or cleaning. Perhaps the rooms are small. Now, I'm not trying to make you dwell on these negative things today or make you feel ungrateful. I want to point something out to you. All of the possible challenges I just listed, and likely any major challenge you thought about in your head right away, all of these are physical challenges. And on one hand, that makes sense because we're talking about physical homes. But have you ever considered that there are spiritual challenges about where we live? Things about our our homes, our neighborhoods, our city, our our country that make it difficult for us to spiritually grow or thrive. As we look at God's word this morning, we're going to meet a church who had some major spiritual challenges about where they lived. Challenges that we may find resemble our, our own challenges that we face today. And as it did for them, I hope that Jesus' words for us... Can both encourage and exhort us today. So you can grab a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 2 with us. Now, we emptied all the seats of the Bible so we don't spread germs that way, but uh, you can gra- find one on your phone if you don't have a Bible of your own. And we'll turn to Revelation chapter 2. If you have tuned into this series on Revelation so far, you'll know that chapter 1 of Revelation gave us this glorious vision, this breathtaking unveiling of Jesus Christ, of the exalted Christ. I'm just going to read a few verses of that. In chapter 1, starting in verse 12, John says this, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man. And then in chapter 2, John begins transcribing messages from Jesus to seven churches in Asia Minor. Seven real churches that likely represented all churches throughout history. We've looked at the first two already, Ephesus and Smyrna. Today brings us to Pergamum. Pergamum. in the city of Pergamum was labeled by one Roman historian by far the most distinguished city in Asia. It's built on this thousand foot cone-shaped hill which dominated the surrounding landscape. Pergamum was known as a major military fortress developed by Alexander the Great but it was also a major intellectual center, medical center and religious center of the area there were Temples and altars and shrines all over the place for gods and goddesses. And like the other cities we've seen, it was also a home for the Roman imperial cult. Which, which was uh, requiring emperor worship. Pergamum per- per- actually had this prestigious temple built for Caesar Augustus. And a refusal to worship the emperor in these places was seen as unpatriotic. And culturally subversive. So when Christians refused to do this, they were accused of being disloyal, hateful, even godless. And because of this, they faced varying degrees of persecution over the years. That's the setting. At least the physical setting. The spiritual setting, described here in Revelation, is quite different. Or Jesus, really, is going to be the one describing this. And it starts out with a reminder of who the real Lord of all is. If you look with me in verse 12 of chapter 2. He says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, Chapters 2 and 3, with all these letters, are really still part of the original vision we saw in chapter 1. Jesus is still speaking. And in each letter, Jesus draws something out of that vision to to highlight. Something that especially applies to each church. And this time, it's that he has the sharp, two-edged sword. And in chapter 1, it said this sword was actually coming from Jesus' mouth. And like we talked about, this doesn't mean that Jesus has a literal sword in his mouth. It symbolizes something. And in all likelihood, this sword symbolizes his word. It comes from his mouth. It cuts, and this word cuts both ways. To wound or to heal. Especially referring to his word of judgment here. So, why highlight this imagery for Pergamum? Well, in Roman times, the sword was used as a symbol of their military might. And the Roman proconsul in charge of the whole province of Asia was actually based in Pergamum. This was their symbol. The sword would have symbolized their power over every area of life. Pergamum was also a city, a rare city, which Rome had entrusted what they called the right of the sword. And this was the right to carry out capital punishment... As at will, essentially. So, describing Jesus as the one with the sharp two-edged sword was making a statement. Jesus, not Rome, was the true judge. And the ultimate power over life and death belongs to Christ. Not to human officials, not to governments, not to militaries, not to law enforcement. It belongs to Christ. Now, how comforting would this be to a church under constant threat, in the midst of fierce spiritual battles? Jesus uses military imagery for a military town, revealing himself as a warrior, ready to go to war. And his weapon of choice, the word of God, is an instrument of both life and death, depending on how you respond to it. Jesus' first words to Pergamum are meant to encourage them, to strengthen them for the battle they were facing. And the point I think the wheelbill will take away is this. That Christ speaks, this is all about Christ speaking, he speaks to commend his church for steady faith in the face of strong evil. The exalted Christ speaks to commend his church for steady faith in the face of strong evil. Look with me in verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell. Now, if you heard someone today go, I know where you live. (laughs) That's usually a threat. I know where to find you, so watch out. But here it's not a threat at all for the believers in Pergamum. It's a a comfort. It's, It's nice to know that God knew about their lives. Like the other churches that we've seen, he knew what they had gone through, what they were going through, and what they were going to go through. He saw, he understood, and he cared. And likewise, he knows the unique challenges that we face living here in Ottawa or in Canada, such as the distrust at best or the animosity at worst that many people have towards the church here. Or the anti-Christian political rhetoric of the day or the media narratives. the, The secular states of our schools and universities. The, the postmodern, pluralistic, relativistic, and materialistic culture that we are immersed in. He knows where we dwell. He knows what we face. But if you think things are hard here, look at what Pergamum was facing. It says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. <laughs> what? Satan's throne was in Pergamum? Does this mean that Pergamum was basically hell? Well, no, actually. Hell, biblically speaking, is Satan's eventual prison. Not Satan's kingdom. If Satan rules anywhere, it's actually here on earth. And Jesus himself calls Satan the ruler of this world in John 12 and 16. And in Ephesians 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And here Jesus says that it's, it's as though Satan's throne, his, his capital city, his headquarters, it's in Pergamum, Your city was essentially the seat of satanic power. Wow. Some suggest that Satan's throne refers to features of the city that looked like a throne from afar. So perhaps the, the 40 foot tall altar they built for Zeus at the top of their mountain. More likely though, Satan's throne just refers to the way Pergamum was the official center of emperor worship in For Asia at that time. In those days, this was Satan's main weapon. This was his main tool for fighting the church. He's using this emperor worship to to try to destroy. Whatever the case may be, it's clear that a strong evil was present and active in Pergamum. And, And whether or not the believers sensed it or realized it yet, they had a powerful arch enemy living in their city who was bent on destroying them. So we might wonder, where is Satan's throne now? Well, we don't know. Spiritually, it could be anywhere. I doubt it's in Ottawa. But I have no doubt that there is still very strong evil that dwells here. One scholar, Grant Osborne, explains that we have a secular society that places a great deal of pressure on Christians to compromise and conform, and a syncretism similar to that faced by the Christians in Pergamum is taking over Christianity with its rampant materialism. Therefore, like Pergamum, most of us live in Satan's realm and face great pressure to weaken our faith and our walk with Christ. Here on earth, whether or not we live near Satan himself, evil forces do dwell around us. The devil roams about like a lion, seeking prey. And demons are real too. We ignore this, and, or underestimate this, to our spiritual peril. It says in Ephesians 6, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Like we usually get caught up thinking it is against flesh and blood. Like we're fighting against other people. We're not. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now some of you may scoff at this and think, well you don't really believe in a a literal devil, do you? Isn't that just some outdated mythology? extreme religious superstition? Well, no, it's not. And yes, I do believe that there is a devil. First of all, if you believe the Bible is true, you can't not believe in a devil. But even if you don't, like I look around this world and I see the vast evil in it. And on the one hand, that leads me to believe in human depravity. But... I have no problem whatsoever believing evil forces are at work as well, prodding us along, trying to trip us up, tempting humanity, trying to destroy us. But we're getting a bit off point right now. Jesus' point here was that the church in Pergamum was admirably standing up amidst strong evil forces says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And then he says, yet you hold fast my name. And you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So he says, they're holding fast, literally grasping forcibly, refusing to let go. And they're holding fast to what? Well, it's actually a who. It says, you hold fast my name. Referring to the identity or essence of Jesus himself. They bore the name of Christ. And they were holding fast to it. And as they did that, they were living up to the new identity that they had in him. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So he repeats the fact they live near Satan. This time he focuses more on Satan's dwelling place rather than his throne. This is Satan's hometown. And yet the church refused to renounce their faith in Jesus, even when life and death were on the line. The message paraphrases this, you never once denied my name even when the pressure was the worst when they martyred Antipas who stayed faithful to me on Satan's turf. Now we we know basically nothing about Antipas outside of traditional speculation which says that he had been roasted to death under the reign of Domitian. It appears though that He may have been the only martyr in Pergamum that time around when persecution flared up. But it's very possible more were coming down the road after all Satan's squad goals include stealing, killing, and destroying. The question for us is when Satan comes stealing, killing, and destroying around us, will we remain faithful to the Lord no matter what happens? Will you? If holding fast to Jesus means losing your job, losing your wealth, will you stay true? If holding fast to Jesus means losing your friends or your reputation, if holding fast to Jesus means losing your freedom, or even your life. Will you cave and compromise? Or will you conquer in his name? Ultimately, who cares what, like, whether other people think we're wasting our lives or making stupid sacrifices. Like, according to the only opinion that eternally matters, God says precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants precious in his sight like if we believe and we rest in the truth that we are precious to God i believe that can help steady our faith and empower our faithfulness to him and in as much as we reflect the, the steady faith of the church in pergamum we should rejoice Because Christ sees this and wholeheartedly commends his people. We we should feel his approval in this and, and hear his encouragement to stay strong. Hold on. However, Jesus can be simultaneously pleased and displeased with us. I mean, the gospel secures his eternal favor for those who believe period, forever. That's great. But, during our earthly lifetimes, pre-glory, there is plenty in us that Jesus wants to change. If you don't believe me, you obviously haven't read these letters in Revelation. Because they are a, a continual mix of gracious commendation and merciful correction at the same time. He wants to transform them. And what we're going to see here with Pergamum is that Christ speaks, not just to commend his people, but Christ speaks to correct his church for false teaching that leads to compromise with evil. Christ speaks to correct his church for false teaching that leads to compromise with evil. They're commended for facing up to evil that was coming from the outside. Then they are corrected for not owning up to evil coming from the inside. Look with me in verse 14. It says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, so within the, the church itself, there were people leading other people astray. It says that they were holding to the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now we don't know for sure, but it's likely these refers to similar, if not the same, teachings. may Remember that earlier in this chapter, the Ephesian church was commended for identifying and opposing the Nicolaitans. Pergamum had the opposite issue. They were tolerating false teachings inside the church. Now, if you don't know the story of Balaam in the Old Testament, let me quickly summarize it for you. Okay, it's found in Numbers 22 to 25, while the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. Israel had just defeated some powerful enemy armies when they camped near Moab. And this terrified Moab, who thought they might be next. So Balak, their king, goes and finds this local prophet named Balaam and tries to hire him to come put a curse on Israel. You know, like a plague or a meteor strike or something. Balaam, though, goes and consults with the Lord, who eventually allows Balaam to go to Moab, but tells him very clearly, do not curse Israel. Don't do it. After some adventures, you may know them, with an angel and a talking donkey, Balaam gets to Moab. Long story short, when Balaam meets Balak, instead of cursing Israel, he ends up blessing Israel on three successive occasions. Balak, of course, just loses it. Like, I hired you to curse them. All you've done is bless them. And they go their separate ways. Now, the next chapter in Numbers describes one of Israel's most fatal mistakes in their history. While they're camped there, some Moabites began hanging around and ended up leading the Israelites, many Israelites, deep into sexual sin and idolatry. And In holy judgment, God sends a plague which kills 24,000 people. Six chapters later, We find out that Balaam had a sinister part to play in this. There, Moses says that the local peoples had enticed Israel to act treacherously against the Lord on Balaam's advice. On Balaam's advice. That wasn't in the original story. Now Moses is shedding some further light on what happened. Apparently, when Balaam wasn't allowed to curse Israel, he told Balak something like, you know, I may not be able to do anything here, but there is something you can do. You know, if you just send out your most beautiful, charming young people, have them teach the Israelites about your sexualized religion. Show them a good time. That'll trip them up. You know what? In the end, it'll be as effective as a, it'll be as effective as a curse. And it was. This is why Balaam becomes a, a, a prototypical false teacher throughout the Bible. His teaching encouraged and then led to sinful compromise with the world. Revelation picks up on this, comparing it to the situation in Pergamum says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So here, people are holding a very similar teachings of Balaam. Like, they're holding some teachings that allowed them to compromise. Engage in practices that Jesus obviously implies are wrong scholars believe that eating food sacrificed to idols referred to taking part in pagan feasts, not just eating questionable food, which is described elsewhere in Scripture as a matter of conscience. It's more than that. But likewise, the sexual immorality is also likely part of this, these idolatrous pagan festivities everywhere, though immorality, on the other hand, is condemned broadly throughout the Bible. But these two issues... Idolatry and immorality. Aren't we haunted by them to this day? And our, our culture might have thrown out a lot of statues, but we essentially worship sex itself. And as long as, along with many other carnal idols of pleasure, and gluttony and self-fulfillment, Speak against sexual immorality today and you quickly realize you have attacked a god of this age. Or dare suggest that we have some cravings that ought not to be satisfied. And you're crucified. So, are there teachers or teachings within the church today that encourage compromise here? Oh, yeah. There are those, on the one hand, who take Christian liberty to the extreme, permitting just about anything. Or maybe anything. And in so doing, they reject biblical morality and minimize scriptural commands. There are also those who have accommodated to the sexual zeitgeist of today. And I tell you, they are zealously evangelized Christians with their newfound enlightenment. Saying we should all be more affirming of alternative lifestyles or genders or what have you. There are many, many teachers out there who have basically decided that many kinds of sexual immorality are no longer immoral. Evil is now good. The Bible says woe to those who call evil good. And I would argue that this is precisely the kind of thing that Jesus denounces here. And why would Pergamum Christians be led astray into these things? That was the easy road to take, right? To to fit in with society, to have cultural approval, to still be liked by your friends, and avoid persecution on top of that. Not to mention the more pleasurable way to go. Good food, good sex, good fun. And some were saying that you could do these things and still be a Christian. And why would Christians today be led astray into compromise? The same reasons. It's easier and it's more pleasurable you'll still fit in, still be liked, you get to love whom you want to love, you get to pursue whatever dreams you want to pursue, and if you still want Jesus thrown in, fine, we can make this work. Funny. The church was living near Satan himself. But the greater danger didn't come from Satan. It came from themselves. and from the inside. It appealed to the Evil that is inherent in all of our hearts. So, what were they supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? Jesus tells us, verse 16. Therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. And Jesus' intention here is not to condemn. It's to correct his people. He wants them to repent. What would repenting look like here? Well, on one level, repentance would have actually meant a form of intolerance. They had to to stop tolerating, to, to purge corrupted teachings from their church. And on another level, it meant for anyone who had actually compromised their faith to turn from their sinful ways and return wholeheartedly to following the Lord. When Jesus first started his ministry on earth, Mark says that he came proclaiming the gospel of God. Saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Now we tend to think, when we think of repentance, we think of it as something negative, something hard to do. But according to Jesus, repentance is intrinsically tied, it's attached to the gospel. Good news. Good news. It's a good thing. We we turn from our sin because Jesus died to pay for our sin. We turn from sin because Jesus crushed sin when he rose from the dead. We turn from sin because the life that Jesus has for us is infinitely and eternally better than the short-term pleasures of life that sin offers us. If there's sin in your life that you've tolerated up till now, They might be idolatrous affections. They might be immoral actions or something else entirely. Today is the day for you to hear Christ speaking and repent. Your sins are, are not just some insignificant matter to him. He died for them. That's how much, how important your righteousness and your holiness is to the Lord. And some of you here, this who have never repented before and given your life to Christ, and I urge you to do so today. Six are so high, eternally high. No matter what it costs you to stand for Christ today, it's going to be so worth it. Not to mention that you simply do not want Jesus as your enemy. Christ essentially gives a repent or else warning here. Again, at verse 16. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. You might wonder, why does Jesus present himself this way here? It seems intolerant to us, unloving. It's not unloving. But Daryl Johnson answers that it's because, as Christ claims elsewhere, falsehood and deception of any kind enslaves people. Jesus is passionately intolerant because he is passionately intolerant of people being enslaved. He is especially intolerant of false ideas being taught and perpetuated in his name. The church is not to be inclusive of all ideas, of all presuppositions, of all social and spiritual persuasions. All of us are welcome in the church, but all of us are then called by the head of the church to repent, to change our minds, to submit our thinking to the thinking of Jesus Christ. And those who refuse to repent will have to face the judgment coming from God's word. Jesus says that he'll actually war against evil that's tolerated in his church. He says, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Is that not one of the most striking, painful images in scripture? Jesus fighting his own church. For now, the church had a chance to, to clean things up themselves. But if they refused to go to war, so to speak, against evil in their midst, God would go to war to purify his church with more drastic results. And if Jesus takes compromise this seriously, shouldn't we do likewise? Think about like all the possible dangers. We talked about this, how Satan wasn't the greatest danger to them, but there's even more dangers here in this passage to Pergamum. They had Satan living next door. They had false leaders, false teachers living in their house. But the most dangerous threat to the church's future was actually Jesus. He's like, keep fighting Satan. Start fighting compromise. Or else fight me. If you want to be on the right side of history? Get on Jesus' side. you got to get on Jesus' side. And what a blessed side that will be. Look, Jesus doesn't end this letter with this threat of judgment. He ends this letter with a promise of great blessing for his people. Look with me in verse 17. It says this. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, speaking of things no one knows, no one really knows what much of this imagery is alluding to. We, may, we know that there are rewards from God. Great, beautiful, special, and eternal rewards. So, I'm going to give you my best attempt at interpretation here. Okay, and, and what I would say is that they have to do with inclusion and identity. These are a couple things that the world has really corrupted, but not with God. Inclusion and identity. So, Christ speaks to challenge his church with the promise of heavenly inclusion and identity. Christ challenges us to conquer in this life by promising us a new and better inclusion and identities in the next. Now think about it. These are the very things that they'd either be missing out on or losing now. Their identity was tied up with a, a vilified, foreign messiah. Their social status was low. Their reputation was low. And if they stayed faithful, they were excluded from so much of life in Pergamum. This is why compromising sounded so enticing to many. They could still be invited to the best parties. They could be included in the coolest circles of friends. Jesus goes, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hear me. Heed me, and I'll give you more than the world ever could. I'll I'll include you in the heavenly feasts, and the parties, and the joy that will make all else pale. I'll give you the special identity and the relationships that you long for. That's essentially what I think Jesus is promising his people here. Through the rewards that seem rather strange or cryptic to us. So first he says... To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. You may know that there was once a jar of manna placed into the Ark of the Covenant. Jewish legend says that when Solomon's temple was destroyed, God told Jeremiah the prophet to take the Ark and hide it underground where it would stay until the end times and then it would be revealed. So, to be given some of the hidden manna is likely connected to an end times heavenly feast. Something like the marriage supper of the Lamb that the Bible describes. Alternatively, it could also refer to Christ himself as the bread of life who provides eternal sustenance. Whatever the case, it's talking about heavenly food, heavenly sustenance, heavenly provision from the Lord, which I am positive will be better than any food you have ever tasted in your life. If food at, at pagan feasts, or any other food, simply cannot compare. I'll give you the head and manna, and then he says, I'll give him a, a white stone with a new name written on the stone That no one knows except the one who receives it. Now there are a a dozen or more theories about what this white stone refers to. From voting stones used in trials. White meant innocence. To a pagan good luck charm. Like an equivalent of that. Where they would have the names of their gods written on these stones. I think the best guess though is is that stones were used in these days as admission tickets for certain feasts. Like, we would use tickets to gain admission into a concert or a sporting event or a movie. And if this is the case, then Jesus again is saying, you're getting admitted to my feast. You will be included in my party. You won't be left out when it counts the most. And finally, I'll give him a, a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This could either refer to a name of God or Christ on the stone, or slightly more likely it's a personal name given to us by Jesus himself. It sounds a lot like Isaiah 62, 2, which says, The nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Essentially, your identity will be defined by your creator. It's like, and he will graciously bestow a a special, exclusive name on you. And it won't even need to be a public name for other people to know because it's going to perfectly represent your personal relationship with God. He's all you need. Your identity is going to be fully redeemed and glorified in this name, representative of the love and status that you have with God, an identification and a a union with the presence and power of Christ. See, being identified with Christ's name on earth could could bring disrepute, humiliation, even death, but being identified with Christ's name and glory is the highest honor that we can even imagine. His his is the name above all other names, after all. So, to have a, a special name that identifies us with his own forever. As far as we can figure this out, this is amazing. What a blessing it is that even if or when we live in Satan's neighborhood... Our future can be this secure. Like the devil may tempt us or even trip us up at times, but he doesn't have the final word. Like in the end, we won't dwell near him, we'll dwell with God. And no matter how much we've compromised or Or listened to compromising voices. We can all still hear Christ's voice. Spoken through the Holy Spirit. Today. Today. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So who are you listening to today? Who are you hearing? The words of. A fear that say we should dread what the devil or the world could do to us? Like I can almost guarantee that that fear will lead you to compromise. Are we listening to the seductive words about what we could enjoy in this life? Or to the people who say it's okay to accommodate our faith to the views of today? Or are we listening to Jesus Christ who who wields the two-edged sword of the Spirit? For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We must all give an account one day. So what is the Spirit saying to you through his living word today? I hope you're listening. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, would you keep speaking to us? Thank you for sending your son, being so gracious to we who are so undeserving of your love or your mercy. We who have compromised in so many ways. We who have who have spurned your love. Forgive us and cleanse us, we pray. May we be a church that is wholly devoted to you. We thank you for what you're doing in our hearts and will continue to do. May we truly be ones who hear and heed and respond to you today. In Jesus' name.